Welcome to Season 2 of the Pines and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This show understands that there is quite a bit of diversity amongst the body of Christ. So we operate according to the motto that certain things are fixed, like the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's cracking beer lovers? What's up? How we doing, friends? Oh, been a long day. And it's, it's summertime. And we got some cool summer beers. It do be like that sometimes. So I want one of my summer beers. Let's go. Well, tell me about it. I am stepping outside my comfort zone. Um, well done. Good for you. I don't actually. What do you think that last word is? Surge. Sur- oh, surge. I see it now. Thank you. Yeah, it's cursive, bro. This is the problem. If you take cursive out of schools, nobody will know how to read in the ancient documents we find. I don't care that you took prayer out. I can teach people to pray in other ways. I'm upset that you quit teaching people how to read cursive. What's sad is I was taught how to read cursive. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Like I, I can for the most part it was it's written weird. It kind of looked like sewage at first, and I was like, "There's no way <laughs> sewage." <laughs> Just spelled weird. The funny part is, like, is this what you see on this podcast is what you get. We've yeah. not had anything to drink today. Yeah. This is just our personalities and the way we jive. Yeah, uh, but it's the big surge from Martin House Brewing in Fort Worth, which you guys know that we like most of the things that we've had from Martin House. And you um, got to represent good Texas breweries. Got to represent. Um, I am stepping outside my comfort zone with this because it is a blue coconut sour with lactose and vanilla. You guys know I'm not a big sour fan. The lactose and vanilla is going to cut so much of that sour stuff. That's kind of what I'm thinking, that it it will be more palatable. That's also why, that's also what turned me off of it. It Mm. had me at blue coconut sour. It Mm. lost me with lactose. (laughs) Yeah. It's 7.5 ABV, and there's not really much else in from, not much else on the can um, to go on here, but it's it's a cool looking can. It is a cool looking can. It's got a dope uh, chick surfer, surfer on there. Yeah, there's a chick surfing over here. Yeah, for sure. All right, I have uh, the Tiki Colada by Galveston Island Brewing. Um, if you didn't know, we live on the east side of Houston. We used to live even fur- even further east where we could get not to Galveston Island, but the beach across uh, or near Galveston Island uh, very quickly. Yeah. We now live where we can still get there pretty quickly, but now we just go to actual Galveston. Um, we can get, I can get to Galveston in about an hour. Yeah. About an hour. Um, depending on traffic. And this is brewed on the island. It's called the Tiki Colada. It's 5.8 uh, ABV. Uh, oh, this is cool. It has a guitar pick over here. I wonder if this is on all. I've never had a Galveston uh, Island brew before that wasn't on tap on the island. Right. So I don't know if this is on a can, every can, but it says drink responsible, drink local. Hey, like that. Yeah. Uh, and this is what it says about it. Pineapple, coconut, and banana blended together to create the perfect island drink. 
So it's like a pina colada, but in a beer. I guess. I don't know. Uh, the banana is the thing that's off. Yeah. But pineapple, coconut, and banana. Um, we're going to see. We're going to see. I, I, I'm hoping that it's good. Um, there's a chance I might be going to the beach on Saturday. And if it is, if I do, I, I think I'll be taking a six pack it, if it's good. Cool. You ready? Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Oh, the the froth has a blue head. See it? Oh, Clayton's beer is blue in color. It's blue. I'm going to go get a glass. Actually, I'm just going to finish this. Just dump it in there. Oh, look at that. Oh, my God. What the hell? It doesn't even look like beer. It really doesn't. You what know what in the world? It looks like it looks like the end of St. Patty's Day where they started yeah. to run out of green food coloring for the beer. Uh, what in the world? It smells good. It is it is straight blue. Yeah, that lactose is heavy on that. This is a sour that I can I can You get down with. The coconut is very faint. And the lactose just kind of provides like this uh like front that cuts the sour tartness yeah. carbonation. No, the the sour hits you right up front, but it, Oh yeah. It, it like goes away pretty quickly and then develops into this like coconutty sweetness. Oh, and so the, the lactose is a mellower mm -hmm. of the harsh flavors, like then, to give fluid yeah. transition. And then nice. you get the vanilla like on the exhale. Dang. The color shocked me. I was not expecting it to look like that. Me either. It, I thoroughly enjoy this though. Like, oh my gosh. I'm shocked how much I like that. Very interesting. Do you want to rate it? What did we say our average was again? I don't know what our average is. I base everything off a of 6.8. Everything starts at a 6.8 and it goes up or down. I'm sitting at a 7.3 then. Dope. So mine... Um, Let me just go ahead and say it's not the perfect island drink. Okay. Um, Is it too heavy? No, it's not heavy. It's pretty light. Um, the coconut is too forward. Mm. It is too much coconut. I was hoping that the pineapple, because that's the order they put it in, pineapple, mm. coconut, and banana. I was hoping the pineapple would be the like prominent flavor in it. Yeah. Nah, it's the coconut. The coconut is slapping you upside the face with it, like, repeatedly. Front palate, mid palate, back palate, down the hosophagus. It is uh, it is coconut all the way through with tickling pineapple and tickling banana. And even the banana, it's really only on the very front. Yeah. Um, it doesn't feel 
real mellowed and like the the flavors are are meshing well together yeah it seems like they're very distinct flavors at very different parts of the palate profile interesting yeah um dang the pineapple basically gets lost in it yeah I, i'm thinking like six three it yeah dang, i hate that yeah, it's not, uh, it will not be coming with me to Galveston. All right. Well, I'm, I hate that, but. There's some other Galveston brew that I like, mm. just not that one. Fair enough. Now, to be fair, I'm not the biggest coconut fan. So, I'm, I mean, it's possible. If you really love coconut, you probably like it. Yeah. If you're like a coconut fiend. Yeah. It'd probably be good for you. Yeah, fair enough. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Today we are talking about atonement theory. One of my favorite things to talk about, actually. Really? Like when it comes to theology, atonement theories, I could nerd out on some atonement theories. Interesting. And here's why. They don't really bring it up. The way in which you structure your primary metaphor of atonement theory mm. will dictate how you actually live out your faith. Okay. Um, I hear that. And I'll explain that to you as we go along. But Clayton, what does atonement, like, what is that word? What does it mean? How does, yeah, that. It essentially to become at one again with the divine. At one mint. Yeah. Yeah. At one mint. There you go. The process of becoming at one. Yeah. The process of writing what had been wronged. Mm-hmm. Now, so tell me, what happened? Why do we need at one mint? At one mint. <laughs> we need at one mint um, because of death. Okay, and how did we get death? Tell me, tell me the story. What happened? The whole shebang. The whole shebang. So God creates Genesis 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. Genesis 3, the fall. And God creates what? God creates everything, existence. And it is good. good. It is holy good. Holy good, and humans are very good. Yes. God creates. And then we get this whole weird narrative in chapter 3 about the serpent. You want to make that Satan cool. Um and nobody then, in the Bible did, but cool. Yeah, nobody in the Bible did. Um, so we get this whole weird thing in chapter three um, about that, and then human humanity being tempted and falling, and the result of that was death. Um, and so we need at one mint to be saved from death. To be reunited with God the way it was originally intended. Correct. I want to specify that. Jesus speaks in a lot of apocalyptic imagery. Revelation speaks in a lot of apocalyptic imagery. Stop all that. God created the way God wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. Here, this earth, man, woman, in divine fellowship with God, present walking together here revelation ends in the most magnificent way you can come up with that so 
what we're what at one man is what atonement is is bringing that truth of Genesis 1 and 2 full circle dealing with chapter 3 and the problems created and coming all the way around now the way in which you make up your atonement theory also gets decided on what you view the problem is mm-hmm. and how that problem came to be about and what God's response to that problem actually means. Mm-hmm. So these are, let's call them models of atonement. It's not the easiest way to think about them. This is the way that Ben and Randy have structured it. I think it's helpful. But all of us are going to choose a primary atonement theory, like a a primary model, and then we'll just kind of reference the other ones. That's just how most people that study this end up doing it. But Scott McKnight, and they mention it in the book, Scott McKnight has a great metaphor about atonement theories. And the metaphor that he uses, is like it's like a bag of golf clubs. Mm-hmm. Every club is needed. Every model and every metaphor is needed. But they're not always needed right. at every shot. I don't need to grab my lob wedge that goes less than 100 yards off the tee of a 600-yard par 5. That would be very dumb. Mm-hmm. Every club is needed for a certain time and for a certain use. In the same way, every atonement model is needed for a certain time and a certain use. But we will all pick a primary um, atonement model to work from. So they structure them into atonement families. and They break it into three families. First family is they call divine restitution. Second family is the victory over evil powers. The third one is transforming vision. So, oh, this is a great question. Clayton, what tradition did we grow up in? Southern Baptist. And what atonement theory do Southern Baptists utilize? Divine restitution. Okay, and specifically which model do you know? Uh... Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be the penal substitution? It would absolutely be the penal substitution. And what yeah. you know about penal substitution? Not much. Not much, not much more than what I read here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're going to go through these in order. The Southern Baptist Convention, which produced me, produced us, made, made us, we grew up in these churches, does believe in the atonement theory of divine restitution. Divine restitution is the truth that creator God ordained humanity to live and serve him in obedience. By pridefully rejecting God's priority, humanity perpetrated an offense against God and violated the ordered system he created. God did not leave humanity in a state of separation and brokenness, but brought restitution to the ordained order through the death of Christ, thus fulfilling the requirements they owed. So, if you look at this, the problem is the offense against God, the violation of divine order has been disrupted. Mm -hmm. The solution to that problem 
is Jesus. How do you get that solution? Well, here you go. Both of these, there are two models they want to talk about, satisfaction and penal substitution. They both require God's order needing to be fulfilled. The vehicle of how they do that is either through his honor, God's honor, or his justice. Okay? So, this is what they say. According to the satisfaction model, humans created an infinite offense against God's honor because to sin against an infinitely great God creates an infinite offense. Humans were obliged to correct the problem, but only God had the ability. Accordingly, Jesus, the God-man, offered himself to restore God's honor. So God's honor is the problem that needs to be fixed in the satisfaction. God's justice is the problem that needs to be fixed in penal substitution, which is the Southern Baptist one you said. So let's look at that one. In the penal substitution model, the focus shifts from God's honor to his justice. Humans in their sinfulness are due a just penalty, hence penal. It is a penalty of death. But Christ dies in their place as a substitute, taking their punishment upon himself so it would not fall on them. In light of Trinitarian theology, the Father is not being appeased by the Son. Rather, the Father and the Son are working in union together to bring salvation to humanity. Okay, so if there is a debt owed to God that humans cannot pay back, and Jesus comes and takes that penalty in our stead, the reciprocity is offering our life back to them. What does that mean in the way in which the proponents of penal substitution perpetuate um, their faith cultures? It's very shame-based. Oh, it has to be, right? Because yeah. that's the view of God. That God has been wronged, and so we have to dedicate our lives fixing God. And so if you wrong me, pastor, you have to dedicate your life serving me. Mm -hmm. All of these things dictate how you make up your salvation model. You are essentially in the penal substitution model. You are at your very core an utter piece of crap. Yeah, and God saved you. Yeah. And now you have to... And saved you because you screwed it up. Mm -hmm. Even though I didn't make that decision. Mm -hmm. Even though I didn't ask to be born. Mm -hmm. None of that. I made that decision, and I'm a piece of crap for it. And I owe my life to God making reparations because jesus did this for me because he took my place on that cross right. i cannot tell you how many systematic theology classes or theology classes just in general where i was it was shoved down my throat that that was the only way to view the atonement mm -hmm. because that's the southern baptist model and absolutely this is for free absolutely they use that as a way to manipulate people mm -hmm. there is no doubt in my mind because i watched them do it mm-hmm Many, many youth conferences, we watched that. <laughs> Golly, 
many, many youth conferences. Uh, Second atonement family is the victory over evil powers. Now, that's their category. The main, if you ever look this up, the main term you're going to hear and use is called Christus Victor. Mm -hmm. The victory of Christ or Christ's victory over death. This is the atonement model that garnered the most um, traction in the patristic period. So the first 500 years of the church. And uh, that's also the period of the church that I did my first master's uh, work in. And this comes from not only Jesus conquering personal powers like Satan and demons, but also conquering personified powers like sin and death in the way that they're used in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6 as these personified evil powers that have some kind of hold and oppression over us humans. Mm-hmm. Jesus' death and resurrection defeats these power and liberates his people. That is, liberation is how you should think about Christus Victor, yep. is liberation. Three main models of liberation or of um, victory. We're only going to talk about two of them here because the third one is actually a hybrid between um, victory over evil and transforming vision models. Mm-hmm. First one, Chris's victor. And what Ben and Randy say is the basic distinction between the models is how the Christ event interacts with the evil powers. So with Christus Victor, the more commonly held of the three, which is true, if you ever look these up, Christus Victor is the most common one of any of these. Christ's death and resurrection are an assault on humanity's evil captor, Satan, and he is defeated by Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which empties Satan's powers over death. Okay, with the ransom model, Satan or death has kidnapped humans and Jesus' death on the cross is the ransom paid to redeem them from their captor. Sometimes you will hear this one have an addendum to it where it's almost like a bait where God God is in a massive chess game with Satan and Jesus is the bait. It's like a switch and hook kind of thing um, or a bait and switch kind of thing. Um, and Satan takes the earthly opportunity to hum- humiliate Jesus on the cross of which God makes that the salvation redemption of the story. Mm-hmm. And... Ben and Randy make a comment uh, earlier in the chapter. They say that uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense that God would choose to save the world through the save humanity through the ancient world's equivalent of dying on the in the electric chair. Like the massive amounts of humiliation of people who are governmentally executed in the electric chair. Mm-hmm. That's the way that this was for Jesus. Yeah. Paul ends up calling it um, the foolishness of God. 
which is the power of God, like the foolishness of the world and the wisdom of God is found in the foolishness of Christ. Hmm. Like the, this inversion of the metaphor here. So in the ransom model, there is definitely this like debt to be paid element. Um, the Christus Victor doesn't have that. It's just that, that God has decided to conquer the forces of evil. Now, there's a third one that falls into this. It's called the recapitulation or deification model. And it takes Christus Victor's framework, the conquering of evil, and combines it with transforming vision. Transforming vision, the fundamental deal here is that the big issue with transforming vision is the problem, and the problem is that humans have turned our focus away from God. That's our problem. This would absolutely be where, like, Pelagius is, if you remember our conversation from a couple weeks ago. Yeah. The solution, therefore, is not about repairing our status before God or defeating the evil powers, but realigning our attention to God. And G the, the message of Jesus dying on the cross is that refocusing. It is that powerful moment to refocus our attention to God. That's all it is. And you do it through two ways. The moral influence model, and that's a pull. Uh, this is how they structure it. We might say that the moral influence model is more of a pull model in that the revelation of God's love pulls unredeemed humanity into a reconciled relationship. The moral example model is more of a push model in that Jesus' sacrifice exerts an outward pressure on his disciples, creating the primary model for how they should live. Either way, what ends up happening is Jesus becomes this exemplar figure for how we should live our lives. Mm. If you're looking for where I am in this, um, I'm going to be in the recapitulation deification model. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit because I do think that it's maybe the most helpful Um. I damn near reject penal substitution at this point. Yeah. The only reason I don't outright is because there are absolutely biblical metaphors that utilize that. And so I can't outright reject it, but it has no place anywhere near my primary metaphors because the damage that has been done through that metaphor is appalling. Yeah. And it also doesn't fit my soteriology anymore. Right. You need a penal substitution, uh, <laughs> atonement if you're going to have a reform theology right when you give up reform theology you don't need that anymore yeah and any kind of, and remember what i said about baptists you know we kind of all of us start out super reformed and then we get reformed and less reformed mm. yeah i think that still exists today for yeah. the most part but oh yeah this is what they say 
The recapitulation deification model addresses the dual issues of the cosmic corruption of sin and the personal effects of that cosmic problem. Humans turned away from the source of life and introduced death into the cosmic order. To remedy the problem, God not only needed to refocus our attention on him, but he also needed to expunge corruption from creation. Through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ, through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ, the immortal God overcame mortality and at the same time revealed himself to those who had strayed. Jesus recaps the human story, but in this retracing or reliving the story, he gets it right and fixes the problem of sin. So there you go. In my model, it's this hybrid. Now, granted, remember, the supervisor of my master's thesis, who did his PhD work in patristics, which is also what I did mine in, also subscribes to my form of soteriology, which is mm -hmm. deification. He's the one that taught it to me. This is his book. He helped write it. There's, I'm sure that all of those things are playing into this. But the reason I love this is because what I see Jesus do on the cross is I see him conquer death and evil. I believe that the biblical story, the antagonist, is death. I see Jesus conquer death, and I believe the protagonist is life, which was supposed to be body embodied in Adam. Well, Adam failed. Adam was born without sin, created without sin, and failed. Jesus, the way the story is told, created without sin and succeeds. He becomes the victor over death while also being the recapitulation, the recap, the one who does the story over and gets it right. Yeah. That seems to be the most homogenous, tie a pretty bow on it way of looking at the message of Jesus and the way in which we become at one once again with God. Thanks for listening to the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.